State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by the KP Movement Institute, offering online and in-person coaching services for those seeking pain-free movement, peak athletic performance, or to improve their overall health. Whether you've been training for years or are just starting out, the coaches at the KP Movement Institute will create a personalized training solution that fits your specific needs. Not only will you optimize your movement and function, but you'll be educated, empowered, and inspired towards a healthier and more active lifestyle. Contact info at kineticperformance.ca to set up your complimentary consultation today. Welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Youngsma. This week, we have Josh Hankin joining the podcast. He is the founder and co-creator of Ultimate Sandbag Training. Josh is a certified strength and conditioning specialist with over 20 years of experience within the fitness industry, working with athletes from the NBA, the NHL, and NFL, as well as high school athletes and weekend warriors. His innovative dynamic variable resistance training system provides a systematic approach to improving human performance. He has a great passion for teaching, which has allowed him to present at more than 13 countries at some of the top fitness conferences in the world. He has also written hundreds of articles for various publications such as Men's Health, T-Nation, and Bodybuilding.com on the topics of functional-based training and performance enhancement. He is highly sought after for his innovative functional training concepts that combine current science and real-world application, and his work has allowed him to consult with the U.S. Marines and top performance and fitness facilities. Our conversation over the next two episodes discusses the importance of understanding context and intent when it comes to training and the use of specific tools. He discusses the seven basic foundational patterns and how he looks at progressing these movements. We discuss the difference between force production and force absorption and why force absorption is a very important component to every training program and some key programming principles that every coach and trainer should know. If you haven't checked out the DVRT system or how sandbag training can be used within your training programs, I highly suggest that you check them out. Now let's dive right in. Welcome, Josh, to the State of the Industry podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Adam. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, I always look forward to having these conversations with uh, people who I've actually seen at conferences and went to sessions. Uh, so I've, I've been to perform better a few times and um, some other conferences that I've, I've seen you at and perf- uh, idea, I believe, and like you've been all over the place. I know you present internationally. So it's always nice to have people on who I've heard them speak before. And I've always wanted to ask like way more in-depth questions. So having a nice long conversation will definitely uh, feed into that a little bit. I want to have been that bad if if you're talking to me still after seeing me speak. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely wasn't. No, it's actually very engaging, very practical. uh, And, and a lot of what you present on is your sandbag, the sandbag stuff that you do in the DVRT Mm -hmm. training system that you do. So we'll get into that a little Mm -hmm. bit later. We'll talk about some of that. Uh, But I want the audience just to get to know you if they don't know you. 
Uh, and so can you just give us uh, a little bit of background about yourself and how you got into the fitness industry? Sure. I'm a Sagittarius first and um, no, sorry. Uh, that probably wasn't relevant information. Um, I got into the industry because, you know, I was a very heavy kid who happened to be taller than most kids growing up. So I got into basketball. Yeah. Uh, eventually found out that just being taller, eventually other kids caught up and you weren't always going to be the tallest. And so I, I basically used uh, that initial introduction to sports to really fall in love with the idea of athletics and especially team sports. And then when I was 14, I suffered a really bad uh, ankle injury playing basketball. And that was the time that, you know, my older brother saw how basically disheartened I was because as a young person, especially that was my whole world. Like every moment spent was basketball Yeah. and uh, not being able to play and, and not being able, actually the injury was so bad. They weren't sure I was going to be able to walk correctly again. So, you know, he and his uh, friend brought me to the local commercial gym. It's like he and his buddy had been working out for a little bit of time. And uh, that was my first exposure to strength training. And I always tell people, you know, I've done a couple of interviews this week. And it's, you know, a great, great way to start. But like, you know, what, what made me fall in love with strength training was I was starting to even see at that time that my athletic prowess probably wasn't going to carry me to be a professional athlete. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you still love something, but eventually your genetic potential sort of hits a ceiling. And so you're like, well, how do I stay involved in something like this? So I was very fortunate that actually when I started high school, my older brother introduced me to uh, a coach that was there who was also assistant strength coach, the Chicago White Sox. Uh, okay. uh, so I got introduced to strength conditioning really early. Like mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh wait, you can get a job where you're paid to train athletes. How cool is that? I want to do that. That was my way to stay involved with athletics. And, uh, so at that time, you know, he introduced me to even the concepts of functional training. So this is you no know, early nineties mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and, and got me also suggested that I go take a, a continuing education course because I, after a few years, I was obviously still impassioned about this idea. So I got exposed to the idea that there was continuing education too. And I don't think he even had the intent that I was going to learn a lot, but he wanted to expose me to the idea of education uh, mm -hmm. in the industry. So I decided to go to uh, college for that. And I was always battling my head. Do I want to be like a teacher slash basketball coach in the high school level, or do I want to do strength conditioning? And uh, so initially, you know, my love of basketball still dominated me. So I went and and try to intern at the Arizona State men's basketball team, where long story short, I end up accidentally walking on. That's a story for another time. Um, but you know, during that process, an, a back injury that I also suffered as, as, at a 14 year old came roaring back. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was basically, I lost use of my right leg for a little bit. Uh, I obviously had to stop basketball. And I was so just destroyed emotionally and, and physically, not just from that singular injury, but the process that had been building up to it that I just like, okay, I'm going to forget this teaching and basketball thing. I need to get away from that. Let's just try the strength conditioning thing. Mm -hmm. And so I started interning at the university strength conditioning program. And that's how I was exposed to like how university programs run, you know, what's involved, you know, coaching a little bit. And, uh, you know, my passion for learning was still there. So even in the university thing, I was still going to continue education courses, which mm -hmm. was hard a little bit because in school, you're learning one thing and then you're seeing what coaches actually in the industry are doing and teaching. And, and I give I give the university a little bit of slack because, you know, changing curriculum takes time. It's a lot yeah. more in-depth than, well, why don't we learn this? Well, because there's a lot of layers to doing that. Mm -hmm. um, but it just drove my passion to, you know, keep learning. And it didn't take me too long to realize, like, I didn't think strength conditioning was necessarily for me. There was lots of reasons uh, for that. So I went, you know, private fitness. And right out of college, I was started training people. 
So that's basically how I got into the idea of coaching. And in a couple of years, I had my own facility and I did that for about 10 years. Uh, and during that time is when I started creating the, the DVRT system and what we do with Ultimate Sandbag. I never saw it really as a business. It was going to be something that sort of maybe just complemented my training business, but mm -hmm. it, it grew up into it grew into something so big that I've, I now just spend my time teaching. And I really am passionate about that because I come from a family of teachers. You said your wife's a teacher, so I can relate. Like yeah. Everyone in my family teaches it in some capacity and that's what I love doing. So it's just an, a really fun way to live my passion and try to help coaches impact other people better. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, you, you mentioned uh, Arizona State University. Uh, just sidebar, I went down there probably four and a half years or so ago. And uh, I actually went down in February and I just wanted to work with their football team for a little bit and like just a few days. Mm -hmm. So I emailed the strength and conditioning coach who was there at the time and uh, was able to just basically follow them for a day and watch how they, they work with their, their athletes. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was amazing to see how integrated the entire system is in the NCAA athletics. Like it's not quite, it's not quite the same here in Canada mm -hmm. with the CIS athletics. Okay. It, it's getting a little better, but like in the States, just, um, and, and even the regulations that the NCAA has on like how much, oh, yeah. you, how much time, like hands-on time you can have yeah. with athletes. Like it's, uh, yeah, it's crazy. Um, so when you were looking at your, your journey through from, you know, you know, working with that mentor and him teaching you all about the education side of things to, um, you know, going and looking into sport and then into kind of one-on-one -on -one training, what are, you know, if you can give us a, a few philosophies that you learned kind of through that, that path, um, that have kind of carried over into what you, you do now with what you do with your DVRT training? I mean, as far as its relationship to DVRT, I mean, all what happened is, you know, a question I get all the time, especially from young coaches is like, they'll see me present and they'll be like, well, where do I learn that? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, that is actually accumulation of a lot of different programs. It's, mm -hmm. it's sort of, you know, I've gone, I went through so many different programs and, and actually implemented what I learned in those programs. I started to shape my own philosophy from that. And so, you know, I think one of the big things I took from that was understanding concepts and principles rather than just exercises and workouts. Mm -hmm. And because if you understand concepts and principles, then we can have a much deeper discussion about why we do certain things or why we don't do certain things. Uh, I feel like a lot of people, they're looking for the answer from someone or some program rather than wanting to actually learn the concepts and principles, right? Yeah. Because there's, and this is another layer to it, there's so much context to everything that we say. So when someone goes, well, so-and-so said this, one of the things I want to know before I respond is, well, what context were they speaking, Yeah. right? Because something may like hit you a little bit funny that you heard someone that you maybe respect or know say something, but unless you know the context they were speaking in, you may not understand what they were trying to convey. So I think that's super important because what may be really good for a high performance athlete may not be appropriate at all for general fitness yeah. or, you know, vice versa. And, and so there's just so many elements that go back and forth. So I think it's understanding, like really taking the time to grow and, and develop a filter, mm -hmm. which is super hard because the filter is a byproduct of experience and learning I mean, yeah. uh, leader learning from books and learning from programs, but also trying to apply it. So you, you know, I think we see it all the time. We see young coaches, they, they come out of a program. They're like, ah, I have the answer to everything. 
and all they're doing is regurgitating what someone else told them and really showing understanding. And so, yeah. I mean, those are things that really placate to like what we do today. And that's why we have, you know, we lead everything with our system and not the tool. Because if you, if we break down what our principles and concepts are then everything else makes so much more sense. And then I can get you on sort of a similar wavelength. And if we want to have a discussion or even a disagreement, we're, we're talking about the right things. We're asking the right questions rather than just getting emotional about, you know, your belief system or mine, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the most common questions I get from young trainers when they're first starting out is, you know, what is the best exercise for this? Or, you know, what's the best program or, you know, so it's like, what's the best bicep exercise? I'm like, for who? right? Like who, who are we programming for? Like, what are their issues? Any injuries? You know, what's their outcome they're looking at? Like there's so much, as you said, there's so much context to, you know, the answer that we're giving. It's, it's not as simple as just saying it's this or it's that. And that can be really frustrating, especially for a young coach, because especially nowadays, like I, I'm going to talk like probably the old person during this you know interview, but like, you know, <laughs> when I started in the industry, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, to re-solidify what you already know. It wasn't to, you know, find the only answer or start to understand uh, things a lot bigger. Uh, the example I always give is I had a young man coming to me. He was about 18, 19 years old. He wanted to fix his deadlift. And he and, and watching him, you know, there was a lot of technique issues and so forth. I'm like, well, what have you been doing? Like, what, 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 where did this interest, interest come from? He's like, well, I got so-and-so's book who's an elite powerlifter. I said, oh, okay, well, do you see the problem? He's like, what? I go, what book was that? And he said the book again. I'm like, who is it for? He's like, elite powerlifters. I'm like, okay. And we did this like back and forth like three or four <laughs> times. I'm like, so finally just, he wasn't getting it. I'm like, do you understand? Like, you're not an elite powerlifter. Mm -hmm. So this program may fit very well in elite powerlifter, but that's not you. Yeah. And, so, and, and unfortunately now we live in an age with social media that someone inevitably will give people the answer they want to hear. Yeah, that's always the danger that we have is if that person comes away because you and I have given them too much gray in the answer and they just want to hear the answer, there's always someone that will give it to them. And that's how like someone becomes popular big because they'll be very dogmatic and people like that because then they have the answer, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it's interesting, uh, Stu McGill, who I'm sure you know very well, mm -hmm. um, his favorite thing is it, like, it depends. Like everything, every question you ever ask is it depends. There's no one answer for everybody. And uh, I also find that with those trainers, you're saying like, you, if you give them too much gray, they go somewhere else where they can find kind of the black, white answer mm -hmm. is they think that the gray is because you, maybe you don't know exactly. what the answer is. And it's like, ah, that's, yeah, it's, it's hard. As you said, it's hard for them to understand. So let's talk a little, let's dive a little bit into uh, your dynamic variable resistance training program that you have. And will just give us a little bit of background about what it is and how it is different from some of the other styles of training that we see within the industry. And then maybe we'll get into some of the, you can lay out some of the principles that you have so we can all be on the same page and then we can, sure. we can dive in from there. It really started off with the idea of, you know, I didn't ever think of the sandbag thing becoming a business. Like I said, it, it was totally organically uh, developed. And it came as a byproduct of me reading some of the old time strongman uh, books. And, you know, I think a big misconception, you know, we love the, the romanticism of old time strongman training, but we tend to negate the fact that there wasn't like a universal strongman system. It wasn't yeah. like everyone had, was following the same protocols or had the same principles or ideas, especially yeah. without the internet, you know, there was a, a trouble in sharing information. 
So it was a challenge to, to take away bits and pieces from what people were saying and try to construct something myself or something that seemed relevant. And you could definitely tell, even though they didn't have the signs at the time, there were things they understood. And, and especially in relationship where what got me more with the sandbag was they all talked about odd object training in some form or another. Yeah. And they talked about it really in twofold that I thought was really intriguing. One was kind of the acknowledgement of stabilizer strength and the importance for that. And the other was they said that it filled in the holes that barbells couldn't. Mm-hmm. Develop. And I thought that was really interesting because, again, if you think about most strength training programs, and I just talked about this in an interview the other day, most people just assume if you're going to get really strong, it's through the barbell. Yeah. And to some extent, again, context is important, what you think is strong and so forth and so forth. Mm-hmm. So it started me down that path of like, okay, let's look at this more. So I got into the, you know, I created my own sandbag and an army duffel bag, garbage bag, duct tape type thing. Yeah. And, you know, using that myself and then starting to use it with clients, inevitably what I end up asking myself was, is this a novelty stimulus or is there some purpose to what we're doing? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of times people mistake novelty for something interesting. Yeah. They can happen, but it doesn't always happen that way, right? Yeah. Uh, so what I sat back and said to myself was like, okay, sandbags have been around for a long time. The internet loves to remind me I didn't create sandbags, not that I ever think yeah. I did. Um, <laughs> So it's been around for a long time. So why isn't it a more of a staple of people's training programs, right? So the question I started asking myself is, is it the tool? Is it the way we use the tool or is it both? And, you know, like a student, you know, I had already been to students for many years in the industry. I was like, well, let me go find out everything I can on sandbag training. Mm Because I didn't have the intent of making something new. So I went and found, and it was really literally a handful of pages in a several different books, right? It wasn't a spelled out system. There's some drills and some things like, oh, this is really good, blah, blah, blah. But there was no like definitive system. Yeah. So I started acknowledging the idea that it's probably the issue of we don't have the right purpose and intent to optimize the unique variables of the implement. And we don't have a system for it because if we treat it like a barbell, well, the barbell is always going to be a better barbell. Yeah. Right. So if that's all that we're going to do, it's not going to have much value. But I saw that there was other avenues and other things that made it very unique and powerful. So I started, I started how to craft out what that was. And that was both through the fixing and developing an actual implement that was designed for what we want to do in training, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I can't think of another tool in training that we value and go, oh, yeah, I just randomly found that at the junkyard. Yeah. But the, yeah. that doesn't happen, right? Because everything is supposed to be made for a specific purpose. So we started trying to standardize, you know, variables that people hadn't done before and, and, and improve the ability to layer progressions through it. So the right tool, the right system, as we work with clients, we say, oh, if we did this and this happens, and if we do this, this happens. So I always say that coaches, I think of us as problem solvers, right? Yeah. That's what we're doing with clients. So when I'm trying to solve a problem for a client, what goes through my head is what do they need What's the best way to address that through the exercise or, or, or training program? What what movement am I going to look at? What tool is going to allow me to do that the best? Yeah. Right. So I don't automatically default to our ultimate sandbag, but that's the process I go through. And so what I started to see is that we had a much bigger system than just even our ultimate sandbag. These were principles that t- typically get ignored in most strength conditioning programs, and, and and most strength training programs tend to be very narrow-minded in how they approach development of the whole body. So I'm like, wow, now we have a system. And you know, my friend at the time, all right, we're still friends, but my friend, uh, Alan Cosgrove, you know, was like, you know, we're having this discussion and I'm like, you know, I want people to get away from this idea of sandbag training because there's no such thing. Yeah. Right? 
if I say to you, Adam, we're going to do barbell training today. Well, you don't know if I'm going to do powerlifting, if I'm doing Olympic lifting, if I'm doing bodybuilding, or who knows what I'm doing, right? Yeah. The tool does not dictate the training. The intent behind using the tool dictates the training. So I wanted to have like, let's get people into our system because the system is more important than the implement. Because I can give you the best tool in the world. If you don't know how to use it, it doesn't matter, right? If you don't have intent behind it. So that's when he's like, well, why don't, we, why don't you call it this DVRT thing? And so that's where the name came about. And so it's, it's really more of a system to address total functional training than it is reflective of only a singular implement. Uh, so it doesn't matter if I'm using the ultimate sandbag or not, the principles in our system are still going to guide me in my programming and what I try to do with clients. Yeah. Yeah. So within that um, DVRT system, what are some of the principles that the system follows to make sure that you are training the way and utilizing whatever implements you're using in the way, in the best way possible? Sure. We, we start off with a couple of key concepts. And one is, you know, probably feels feel familiar to some people is the idea of movement patterns, right? So there's, you know, I learned this from Paul Chuck in the late nineties and it's funny how it's become a thing again. It's this idea of like, there's seven foundational movement patterns. There's squat, hip, hinge, lunge, push, pull, rotation, locomotion. And it's interesting in our industry, we've actually tried to shrink that. Like mm -hmm. Some people will leave out rotation. Some people leave out locomotion. You know, it's like, no, we, if we can't even come to this basic agreement that these movement patterns exist, it's going to be hard for us to get onto a universal idea of like how to train people yeah. or our best methods, best practices. So you have to acknowledge those seven. And I love what Greg Cook uh, of FMS says, you know, basically movement patterns are the best example of our hardware and our software working cohesively, meaning our hardware, our muscles, our joints, our, our structure, and our, and our nervous system being the software. So if mm -hmm. we have good movement patterns, we know the body's working very efficiently. Yeah. Because I think it was Lee Taft said that really the goal of every program is to build efficiency, mm -hmm. right? Movement efficiency. Yeah. So, you know, so we base everything off those seven patterns. Now within each of those patterns, there's a whole bunch of layers, right? And, and so then we go off of the fundamental strength training concept of progressive overload. Mm -hmm. If I ask most people, what does progressive overload mean? They're going to tell me, well, you need to add weight to an exercise to make it more difficult. That is a variable within progressive overload, but that's not progressive overload. Yeah. Okay. So for people that are listening, progressive overload is adding a stress to the body than greater than before. Hmm. Now that stress comes in many forms. A lot of coaches intuitively do things like they'll change range of motion, they'll change speed, they'll change sets and reps, they'll change rest intervals, and they'll change load, right? Load is a variable. Yeah. So there's five variables right off the top that most people don't really program and structure and progress. They think of load and they think of volume. Yeah. Right. So what we want to do is now with what we have with the tools, we can even expand that to a greater degree because the ultimate sandbag lends itself to being placed in the body in unique ways that create different outcomes. We can also progress and add stress to the movement in very specific ways by changing the holding position. How do you hold a weight? Something that almost no program really gives much consideration to because there's very limited ways you can hold a barbell and a dumbbell and so forth. Yeah. Then something I borrow from kind of like gymnastics and bodyweight training is the idea of why don't we manipulate our body position when we lift? Why not make that as incremental as load or these other progressive overload? So there's two additional variables. Then the third one was, well, there's this whole concept of planes of motion that we all kind of know about, but don't ever do anything with. Yeah. So why don't we systemize that? Because that's so important to functional based training and something that no one's ever done before. And we use that as a series of progressions as well. And the last thing that's unique to our implement is 
instability of, it, of the implement itself. So now we just add four more variables of progressive overload that can sound overwhelming to people. But if I just ask you to think of adding one of those systematically to your program, your program is going to get better. It's going to become more thoughtful. It's going to have more solutions that you can offer people. It's going to have more layers of regression and progression available to you. It's the old adage. If you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. Right. So we try to not just give people more options to have more options, but we thought about what makes up human movement and what are variables important to address in order to make sure that we're actually addressing true functional based training. Yeah. And um, just for, so we make sure that we have the same definition, like the audience and, and, and you, can you define when you're talking about functional? And I know like, cause I've listened to a couple other uh, podcasts that you've done. You don't necessarily like the word just saying functional as a word because it can get very convoluted, but what is the definition that you use uh, for functional? Well, I borrow a definition from a lot of different people like McGill, Gary Gray and so forth. And it's very root and it sounds overly simplistic. It's to improve the way the body functions. Yeah. Right. Which is different because it, it, you know, most people define, most coaches I find define functional training as replicating what you do in human life. That's not functional training because that would be like saying, Hey, my, my tire on my car just went flat and all I need to do is keep driving my car and eventually like it'll, it'll fix itself. Like it's not the same thing, yeah. right? You don't replicate movement. You go, you break down what's happening within the movement. So if we don't know how something works, we can't make it better. Yeah. So unfortunately, a lot of coaches don't know how the body functions, right? So, and, and I take this from McGill, basically the idea of functional training is to improve the strength of the linkages of the chains of the body. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot more profound than people think. And I'll give you an example. So if people think, you know, I just, I just hurt my shoulder, I'm going to strengthen my rotator cuff. They're using a bodybuilding approach to improving function. Because that shoulder may not have had a weakness problem. It could have had a motor control problem where it didn't turn on the right time or it doesn't have synergy or it's part of a chain with the core opposite side of the lower body. And maybe there's dysfunction in that chain that caused that, you know, rotator cuff to get hurt. So again, if you're going to look at it from a parts perspective, then you're always going to be going down the path of isolation and basically bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. And we know from research that doesn't improve the way the body functions because you have this nervous system, you have this software, yeah. right? If my, if my computer has a bug on it, I, I can change the keyboard all day. It's not going to make it work better. You have yeah. to change the software. Yeah. So it basically train, you have to understand how the body functions and then how are we going to then take those movement patterns and build progressions that allow people to learn how to teach their body to work more efficiently. Yeah, that, that's different because a lot of people, they have the goal of, you know, aesthetic goals or strength training, you know, they want to lift, lift bigger or, or they want to perform better. But if you address the functionality of the body, everything gets better. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just said the other day to someone, just because something's more familiar to you doesn't mean it's better. Right. Yeah. Meaning like someone asked me, well, well can, can this build muscle on you? Of course it can. Why would not, why would improving the way the body works, not build muscle? That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it almost would make less sense to me saying, "Hey, you know what I'm going to do? Is I'm going to go opposite of how our body is designed to function to try to make it better." Yeah, which is what bodybuilding is. Yeah. So if I had to give you the two options, you'd probably default. If I took it out of context of training, you'd probably be like, "Well, we're going to fix this car. We're going to make the car. We're going to fix it in the way it's designed to function, not opposite." Yeah. But that's how most people approach strength training. I've seen very high level strength conditioning programs that operate in still that old format. They're still bodybuilding. They're not calling it, but the mentality is a bodybuilding one. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, and I don't want to throw bodybuilding under the bus because there's a whole bunch of different categories that, that do the same thing, but it's, I think, difficult for a lot of kind of different ways of training or people who perform one specific type of training. So let's say bodybuilding as an example. It's hard to, I guess, have the conversation or convince them that you can still have bodybuilding. You can still increase, as you said, that muscle mass while still improving the function of all the individual parts and then the system as a whole. How would you have that conversation or convince somebody who maybe comes to you and wants to improve aesthetics, how do you have that conversation with them? Because there's a lot of new trainers who struggle to have that conversation with new clients and like introduce them to something a bit more, you know, functional while still having that bodybuilding aspect to it. Sure. I'll give you a philosophical way of going about it. And I'll give you an actual example of what I've actually done. So if you understand principles and concepts, then being able to speak in a meaningful way to whoever you're speaking to is rather easy. If I know your goal is primarily cosmetic, I'm going to speak to you the benefits of training this way for your cosmetic goals. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk to you or talk at you in a way that's not meaningful to you, right? If, I, if I'm working with a, you know, a sprinter, I'm not going to tell them how big we need to make their biceps so they go to the beach and look better. That doesn't mean anything to them, right? Yeah. So I'm always going to speak in context and relevance to them. So I have to understand what I'm talking about well enough in order to do that. If I don't, if I just have a bunch of, you know, ready to play quotes or, you know, sound bites, well, that's not understanding. I'm not going to be able to communicate very well. Yeah. Now, from a practical standpoint, like I had a client who one day asked me, he's like, hey, Josh, how come we train this way and not the other way? And I'm like, what do you mean the other way? And he described basically what you're saying as a bodybuilding approach. Yeah. Because his, his goal, he was a 50-year-old CEO and he just wanted to look good, right? Mm. I said, Brad, if I could make you a million dollars in 30 days or a year, which one would you rather have? He's like, 30 days. I'm like, that's what we're doing. We're building a better body in 30 days versus a year. He's like, okay. Like, <laughs> That made sense to him, right? You got yeah, to put yeah. into a context that makes sense. Now, what you're saying about different, don't not throwing bodybuilding in the approach, I'll throw it in the bu- under the bus because it's different than it was 50 years ago. Yeah. Right? Bodybuilding was originally called physical culture. It was mm-hmm. part of the physical culture movement, which was from the Greeks of building that the physical was as important to the body as the mental and other aspects of the person. So it wasn't until, you know, about the 60s and 70s when machines became more paramount, we saw change. Because if you look at someone like an old school bodybuilder like Franco Colombo, who just recently passed, Franco could do a front lever on gymnastics rings. Yeah. Well, if you look at his train, his train was probably closer to what we would call functional day than it would be to a modern, you know, magazine workout that you'd see today. Yeah. So to be fair, I mean, bodybuilding, again, it's one of those things, context is important. If we're talking about the old school bodybuilding, it's probably closer to what we mean than what we be, what we typically see people do nowadays. The pharmaceuticals are way better, right? Yeah. There's, there's lots of other things that are way better. So again, it's just because people, again, because you're familiar with that doesn't mean it was the better way. Yeah. That's what's people's reference point. And I, I got to change what your reference point is. Because again, are you going to tell me the body of a gymnast is not impressive? Mm-hmm. Are you going to tell me the body of a wrestler is not impressive or a martial yeah. artist? These are not people that sit there and isolate their muscles or train their body weight approach. Yeah, most of us would be very happy to have the physiques that they demonstrate. Yeah. Yeah, I went and did um, some jujitsu once. And uh, man, I've never been more sore 
after an hour than I was after some jujitsu, like rolling on the floor and wrestling. Like you, you move in different ways. You're put into positions that your body's not used to. You're forcing it to stabilize joints and, oh man, it was, uh, it was, it was intense. It was intense. I was very sore. And it wasn't just because of all the, the burns that I had on my feet and my <laughs> knees from, from doing that. So uh, let's talk a little bit, because you mentioned some of the, the principles that you have. So I just wanted to actually touch on um, a couple of them that I think are really important to lead us into some of the other things that I want to discuss today. And one of them is the concept of training in different planes of motion and not just like every exercise has one plane, but most of what you do is triplanar anyways, when you look at an individual joint and how it has to move, but what's the importance when we're looking at combining, you know, frontal sagittal transverse plane exercises into a program versus the, you know, traditional sagittal plane or frontal plane motions that we do? What's the importance of doing that for the overall development of the body? Sure. And just so everyone is on the same page, like there's a couple of concepts to clarify. One is there's joint stability, like you mentioned, like your shoulder, and there's whole body stability. So we're typically referencing whole body stability. It'd be kind of contradictory for us to talk about, oh, functional training is integrated, and then we're going to talk about your shoulder stability, right? Yeah. We're talking stability of the entire body. So if I, there's three planes, just for make sure everyone's on the same page, sagittal, front and back, you know, up and down, typically frontal side to side and transverse is rotation. Now, what, when you think about those things, you know, again, if we think about human, how humans move, the most foundational thing, out of those seven patterns I talked about before, this always throws coaches off when I speak at conferences, the most foundational pattern is locomotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no one goes to the gym and goes, today I'm going to work on my locomotion. You wouldn't believe it, man. I'm going to kill it. I'm going to PR on that locomotion. <laughs> and there's a difference between carries and locomotion, right? Because a side plank can be a locomotive exercise if you understand yeah. what's made up of locomotion. So the, the, the trouble is that people just don't even understand what those concepts are because the, the challenging part is I can move through those planes of motion and I can resist them, Yeah. right? So the example I like to give, if I'm walking towards you, Adam, you're straight ahead of me. I'm walking towards you. I'm moving through the sagittal plane. I'm going straight at you. But I have to resist the frontal plane. Otherwise, you get like a model like hip sway, right? And no one wants to see that from me. And you work <laughs> in opposite limbs, right? You have an opposite arm and leg swing that creates some rotation in the body because yeah. that's efficiency. So I'm using all three planes, but I'm using them in different ways. So yeah. why is that meaningful other than, okay, I do that? Well, because you have chains of your body that are designed to resist or move through these different planes. I'll give you an example. So someone the other day when we were, I was on an interview, they were talking about like a glute med drill, right? So if you lay down, someone says that you have weak glute med. I don't know how we determined that, but they determined it. And so they have you lay down with a band and you're doing that, you know, hip abduction exercise. You're moving your hip up and down against the band, right? Yeah. Your glutes burning. You feel like it's working. You stand up. You're like, oh man, it's really tired now. And you're like, I must have worked my glute med right. Here's the problem. That muscle's not made for that. Mm-hmm. The lateral chain of your body, there's a whole chain that's supposed to prevent unwanted movement in the frontal plane that's both in an order to allow you to move with more efficiency because your body only cares about one thing which is survival yeah so if you move very inefficiently you'd either need more energy in the form of food to survive which isn't very evolutionary advantageous or you wouldn't be able to get away from something very efficiently that's chasing you that would be very good yeah so you know our body craves that efficiency so if if we have if we don't have the efficiency then we get a lot of compensatory movements 
And that's where we get low back problems, knee problems, shoulder problems, and so forth, because those genes are not doing, they haven't been trained how they are supposed to function. Mm-hmm. And so then the argument that I hear from strength coaches, I think you kind of alluded to it was, well, if we train the sagittal point, if we get a really big squat, a really big bench press, really big you know, deadlift, that's fine. We'll start moving there. To some degree, that is true, right? If you're comparing it to not training at all. Yeah. But I think uh, Brand's wife, I know you re- interviewed uh, Dr. Brand Marcel recently. His wife yeah. had a great thing about talking about it, we, we haven't built movement vocabulary. Yeah. So if I put movement in terms of language, if I say, hey, Adam, I'm going to teach you five words, you can still speak to me, but you can only say a limited number of things. Yeah. If I teach you how to say a thousand words, you can still speak to me, but now you can express yourself in many different ways. Yeah. And movement is kind of the same way. So if we don't address these planes of motion and how we think about training, we're A, not addressing the true functionality of the body. We're leaving behind important progressions to teach people how to move and function better. And three, we're not actually building a better body. We're just building better muscles. Yeah. Which are, yeah. which can, can be two different things. And people like David, uh, Dr. David Tavero actually talks about like, it goes back to the central nervous system. If our nervous system doesn't learn how to coordinate these different movement patterns in different environments, then we're never going to see much progress, right? We'll get very stuck. It's not that sagittal plane is a bad guy. Sagittal yeah. plane is important because it's the most stable plane. Yeah. So if I have a new person coming to me, yeah, their program is probably going to be 99.9% sizeway plane based. And the next, the, the question is then what do I do from there? Yeah. That's where the, the need to have the system is important because we have to answer that question. Yeah. And I think that's why so many trainers get lost in, as you said, that idea of load, 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 because they're stuck in that. Okay. So I've, um, uh, increase the efficiency of the sagittal plane and all the exercises are moving well. So I'm just going to load, 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 because that's the only, or, or volume, right? That's the only thing I have less that left is volume and intensity. And um, so you, you mentioned something interesting and I wanted to dive in that, that a little bit, because as you said, locomotion is probably the one out of those seven that most trainers are like, what locomotion? Like I, I get rotation, I get squatting, I get, you know, hinging and pushing and pulling and I get all those, but locomotion, I don't understand how I train that. Like, as you said, nobody's going to walk into the gym and get a PR in locomotion unless they're walking on the treadmill. Anyways. Um, so can you explain about how we can help to improve that functional pattern in the clients that we're seeing and how we can start to think about linking, okay, the exercise that I'm doing with that pattern specifically? Because you mentioned side plank and I'm pretty sure no listener is going to be thinking to themselves, yeah, side plank. I can, I understand what he means by that. Like I, I, I get it, but I, I don't know if they do. So if you can just walk through that a little bit. Sure. And to help people put in perspective, I mean, my wife's a physical therapist and several years ago I had this idea. I'm like, if we're going to do justice to educating people, then, you know, we're going to have to address this idea of like understanding locomotion. I'm like, can you like, you know, break down locomotion, you know, really easy for people. And she just gave me the, like, you just said something stupid face that wives (laughs) give husbands often. Yeah. And she goes, there's no such thing as simple locomotion. It's a, at least a semester of physical therapy program. The point being, I'm like, that wasn't helpful. The point (laughs) being, is that it's, it is complex, but we can derive some concepts out of it to help people understand it. I, I do buy into the Einstein idea. Good teachers take complex subjects and make them simple to understand. Yeah. So there's a myriad of things that we can look at. So first off, let's address you know the confusion that people have because they may have I may have glossed over it earlier, which is I said carries are not necessarily locomotion training. 
They can be, but they don't have to be. So when we talk about movement patterns, we have movement patterns and we have exercises. So sometimes it helps to put this in a different frame. If I, if I say, hey, you know, Adam, you asked me, well, Josh, what do you do in your program? I go, we deadlift. I go, okay, but what do you do for hip hinging? Go, I just told you we deadlift. That's an exercise. That is part of the deadlift or a hip hinge umbrella. Yeah. But hip hinge is also a hip bridge. It's also a power clean. It's a kettlebell swing. It's a single leg deadlift. It's all these other things too. Yeah. So if I, if I, that's why we want to look at movement patterns. Cause our thing is where are you along the movement pattern hierarchy? Yeah. Right. So when we derive now, if we bring that to locomotion, really those six other movement patterns are supposed to help us make up components of locomotion, mm-hmm. right? A lunge, you can see there's a component of locomotion to it. A squat, there's components of pushing and pulling. There's even components, if you do it correctly, of locomotion. Mm-hmm. So what can we start thinking about? Well, one is we just talked about that it's triplanar, right? I am moving the sagittal plane, frontal plane, and, and I resist frontal plane, side plane to, uh, rotation too, but I can also move through them as well. Depending, like if I'm like hiking, I'm probably gonna move in different planes reflexively. I might climb over this rock over here and then climb up over here. I'm not walking always in a straight line. So then we have, we have to say, hey, in all those six other movement patterns, we have to develop your ability to resist frontal and transverse plane. And then we have to incrementally build your ability to move through those planes of motion, mm-hmm. right? So you go, okay, so Josh, why is a side plank locomotive? Well, as I told you in the, at the very beginning, when I said, I'm, if I'm walking straight to you, I wanna resist the frontal plane. I wanna resist my little hip shift, right? Give me a good booty walk. Yeah. I wanna resist that actually. The more people should laterally shift their hip, the less stability they have. So a side plank, what's the goal of a side plank? It's a low level core stability exercise to build up the frontal plane resistance ability of that chain, Yeah. right? So if I'm having all this lateral deviation in my pelvis when I walk, where am I start people? I'm probably gonna start them in a easy environment on the ground, right? I'm negating a lot of aspects of gravity and we're gonna work some side planks. There's an aspect of locomotion. But I also have the idea that I have opposite arm and leg working. Why does that happen, right? We all see it. If I do the same side, that looks weird. If yeah. I do opposites, it, it makes sense. But why does my body do that? So again, it goes through efficiency and safety, right? So walking, the difference between walking and running, so people understand, it, isn't just speed. So in walking, you're spending 60 to 70%, 60 to 70% of your time on one leg. That's a lot. Yeah. Running, you're spending all your time on one leg. Right. Uh, my friend Alan Cosgrove had this great, you know, exam analogy. He goes, if I told you to do 1500 single leg plows on each leg during a workout, you'd probably say I was crazy. Right. But that's called running a mile. Yeah. Right. So a lot of people don't, just because they don't see load on the body, they assume running is very easy on the body. Right. It's, but it's eight, but we know it's eight to 10 times one's body weight and acting on them in an unstable market, you're on a single leg, right? So if, you, if people imagine themselves, hey, not only am I gonna make you stand on a single leg, but I'm actually gonna make you move with the direction, accelerate and decelerate. Well, there's a lot that has to happen very re- reflexively, right? I don't yeah. consciously sit there and go, I gotta flex my quad now, now my hamstrings, like has to happen like that, right? Yeah. Has to happen super fast. I'm not even thinking about it. So why does my arm and leg swing? Well, if I'm unstable, how do I create stability? Well, there's a couple of areas of my body that I always wanna protect, right? My head and my spine. Yeah. That's why if you even like fake, like if you catch me really fast and you fake like a ball being thrown at my face, I'll cover my face. Yeah. Right. It's just reflexive because my body wants to save my head. Yeah. Right. It's an evolutionary thing. Same thing with my spine. So how does my spine, if I'm unstable, how's my spine find stability? 
Well, you have two chains. You have a, an anterior chain, so one coming from the oblique down to the opposite adductor, and you have one going from the glute on the backside through the thoracolumbar fascia of your core up to the other lat. So your body always works in opposites. That's very important for people to remember. Mm. So if those chains, they reflexively create stability at the right time. So if you were tight all the time, if you're like going under a maximal squat every time, you walk around like Frankenstein, right? Yeah. Like it wouldn't be good. So your body has this, per, tries to find perfect balance of relaxation and tension. So you don't even think about it. these systems happen like that, right? They're happening super fast, on off, on off, on off, so that you can move with fluidity. Yeah. So how does that imply you like train? Okay, cool fact. How does that prove? Because I, you know, in person, I show people, if I just test your glute in isolation, most people are weak. If yeah. I test your glute in function with your core and your opposite glat, you become strong. Yeah. So let's take an example of something that people are very familiar with. A, bar, a hip bridge with a barbell on their hips, right? It doesn't have to be a barbell, we'll just use it because most people use barbells. So if I bridge up and down, people feel their glutes, they're like, oh yeah, I feel my glutes. And your glutes can't hypertrophy from that, but what's missing from the environment? No core, no lat engagement. Yeah. So I can make those glutes look better, they won't necessarily function better. Yeah. Unless I bring in the core and the lats. So what we do with our tools is we teach people how to do that in a very easy way, mm -hmm. right? I don't talk coach speak when I talk to clients, I talk like I'm talking to mom and dad. And yeah. so one of the big differences that we have in our system is most people, when they think of adding load, they think that it's gonna make the exercise harder. Many, many times in our system, we're adding load to give feedback to the individual to understand better how to use their body. Because if I tell you, Adam, use your left lat, and you're just a general person, they're like, cool, where is it? Yeah. Right? I don't know. And then even if they know equipment? where it is, yeah, <laughs> even if they know where it is, they're like, I don't know how to use it. What do you mean use it, right? Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like when you see things in movies, sometimes it makes us laugh at ourselves. Like there's an old movie called I Love You Man with Paul Rudd in it. And yeah. Andy Samberg and Andy Samberg's work, a, a commercial gym trainer. And at one point, Paul Rudd talked to him and Andy Samberg talks to his client, goes, engage your core, man, engage your core. I'm like, oh man, I, I, I laugh because I've said it in the past, but what a meaningless cue, right? What the hell does that mean? Yeah. It means yeah. nothing. Yeah. So we, we were trying to teach concepts and principles to people by giving them something to have a an actual task to get, give feedback to. Yeah. So we try to make, we tr you don't know when we're training locomotion, you don't know you're training locomotion. I'll give you an example. Yeah. A dead bug is a locomotive drill. I want to keep my pelvis quiet. So if I'm laying on my back, if people don't know, I'm laying on my back, my arms are straight, my knees are in line with my hips, and my feet are off the ground. I'm going to bring one arm over my head as the other leg kicks out. You can visually see it's kind of a locomotive drill, right? Yeah. Opposite arm leg, the goal is to keep the pelvis quiet and the arms are creating lever arms and so is the leg to pull the pelvis into extension, right? So mm -hmm. I want to resist that. Well, if anyone's ever tried to give people that day one, they know that people are flailing on the ground. They don't know like, and what do you tell them? Uh, don't do that. Okay, yeah. how? But if I can now give you a tool and give you a different intent, and I teach you how to connect your body better to create a better environment in which your body can learn how to do that, then I can teach you skills that you may not care about. You may not care about improving your locomotion, but man, you feel your core a lot and people like that, Yeah. right? So that person that wants fat loss, that person that wants cosmetic goals, they feel their abs work and they're happy, but I know I'm teaching your body how to connect more efficiently. I'm teaching you concepts we can build off of to more sophisticated exercises and I'm building you a reference point. And so I'm solving a lot of problems for me as a coach, but I'm giving you also what you want. Yeah, yeah. Did that, did that help explain it a little bit? Yeah, it's good. I like that. Uh, and I liked your movie reference. Uh, yeah, love that movie. Those <laughs> and that just, it reminds me of like 
in Anchorman when he's talking about like when he's doing those bicep curls. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I was just working uh, the biceps and attached to the latissimus and the <laughs> upper dorsimus, and he's just like rambling like customers, right? Like, like or sorry, um, clients, right? Like yeah. they just they don't necessarily understand. So we have to, as you said, put it into terms that are not only lay terms but also relevant terms for them, so they can, you know make it something that they can instantly think, okay, yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I understand the concept and the context of what you're speaking of. There's two keys that every coach needs to do if they want to have a successful business clients. You need to step back a little bit and look at what your clients think. So their thought is I can't do this. So yeah. if you can build a win from day one, you can make them feel like they can do it. They're going to stay with you because in their head, they're looking for reasons that they can't. Yeah. Number two they want, they want to know it doesn't have to hurt. So it drives me nuts now. And, I, and a younger version of me may have been guilty of this as well. When coaches get really upset when a client goes, oh, I want to train with you, but I have to get in shape first. Yeah. You're not, we aren't listening to what they're telling us. What they actually said was, I've watched you or I think I know what you do. And I think it's so intense that if I do it right now, I'm going to hurt myself. Yeah. So I need to build up a level of fitness to even do what you're going to ask me to do. So their fear is getting hurt. So if you start to address this, instead of getting upset by it, and more educating them like, well, like what level of fitness do you think you need? What, what is causing you? Like, then you can get to bigger issues that they may be perceiving what you do. So if you can address those two things as a coach, you'll have a lot more success with clients. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Especially maybe not so much right now, unless it's, you know, all the Instagram videos they're watching, but yeah, definitely in gyms, because I've heard that before. I've also heard, uh, like people needing to get into shape just to go to a gym, right? Because yeah. they don't look like the other people in the gym or the trainers in the gym or even the marketing materials that gyms give out, right? They just don't look like that. And so they think they have to look far just different. Just really quick. And, and I mean, just to, to, to play off what you said there, and, and like trainers go, oh, right, really? Oh my God, no one cares. I go, okay, let's switch environments. I'm going to invite you to a high-end, you know, gala. Everyone's in tuxedos and women are in big ball gowns but I'm only going to give you clothes, workout clothes with holes in them. And you're, that's what you're going to go in. Are you going to be self-conscious? Are you going to be apprehensive? Of mm -hmm. course you are. That's how clients feel going into a gym. Yeah. So if we just shift because we're comfortable there, we forget how uncomfortable it can be. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, I think that's a great place to stop part number one. And we'll pick it up talking about some more about the sling systems and about force absorption in part number two. State of the Industry Podcast. I'll be back.